0: everyone this is holly gilbert stowell your host of security management highlights in the march podcast we spoke with homeland security editor lily Chapa about the problem of bottlenecking at the border that occurs as goods and services being produced in juarez and central mexico are trying to make their way into the united states For this month's bonus episode, we sat down with Patrick Schaefer, Executive Director of the Hunt Institute for Global Competitiveness. That institute studies relevant regions and provides information for stakeholders on everything from infrastructure and urban planning to natural resources and public health. He joined me to talk more about the issues of trade, commerce, and security at the U.S.-Mexico border and the role that their research plays in helping to affect change. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Can you just tell us a little bit more about the Hunt Institute for Global Competitiveness? What is it, and what is its mission?
1: This institute here is really for you. I mean, that's what we're here for, to provide all kinds of insight, whether it's historical context or geopolitical context or even the precise data and information in a certain sector. And I think that this relationship between trade and security is very intimate. It's very interrelated, and so I think insofar as anything we can do to help you Um, provide a more nuanced and detailed view of that for the benefit of your readers and your audience, we'd be more than happy to, to help. Yes, our mission is to really elucidate and clarify a lot of the activity and economic conditions that prevail here in what's called the Paso del Norte region. And that region is at the far west Texas border here in El Paso, but also at the southern edge of New Mexico and the northern edge of Mexico in Ciudad Juarez. So this region is very special because when you look at the North American continent and its geography and geology even, The El Paso region has really the most favorable terrestrial trade routes between the Pacific and the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic. But it also has uh, simultaneously this uh, tremendous uh, ability to take goods and services through from central Mexico up through northern Mexico into the Rockies and northward into Canada. And that's, you know, really sort of the origin even of the name El Paso. It was El Paso del Norte. So it really kind of even evokes that special north-south orientation that we have. But also this east-west orientation is of really geostrategic importance.
0: So, Patrick, what are some of the challenges at the U.S.-Mexico border and how do you think this problem has been exacerbated over the years? Can you give us some context?
1: This trade route that we occupy in El Paso has been around for millennia. And so when the Spanish came and sort of conquered this territory, that trade route became even more robust and became known as the Camino Real, the, the Royal Road. And that Royal Road went from Santa Fe, New Mexico, all the way down through El Paso into Mexico City. So what happens now is that uh, you have centuries and centuries of relationship and proximity, culture, affinity, historical affinity, between the communities here. But uh, over time, those communities were separated by these political boundaries that came into existence in in the 19th century. So what happens then is that now, with the difference in market systems, the difference in economic and political systems between the U.S. and Mexico, a lot of the industry and commerce is trying to get into the U.S. market. And there's only really certain points along the U.S.-Mexico border where that is most favorable. Laredo, the two Laredos between Mexico and Tamaulipas in Mexico, that is a north east-facing corridor that takes a lot of industrial goods uh, from Monterrey, Mexico, into Texas and the Gulf and the East Coast. On the western edge of the continent we have the Otay Mesa ports of entry in San Diego, Tijuana, but in the middle of the continent we have El Paso. So as free trade agreements came into effect, particularly with NAFTA, and as foreign direct investment agreements came into effect also with NAFTA in the Americas, it allowed for a lot of nearshoring as they say. So a lot of capital came into Juarez and Northern Chihuahua to set up industrial operations. And those goods and services and people really want to, you know, move into the U.S. market, into this giant sort of free trade zone that we have with the the 50 states. So, again, as we were talking about earlier, this little pass is narrow. I mean, it's not sort of like hundreds of miles wide. It's maybe a mile wide uh, at the most. So a lot of this industry has pushed up to Ciudad Juarez. And then there's a lot of, like, demographic growth associated with the industrial growth. So now in Ciudad Juarez, in a region that was once very bucolic and very provincial, you know, was primarily focused on cattle raising and agricultural activity, is now sort of one of the world's it's preeminent, and certainly Mexico is one of Mexico's preeminent industrial centers, and so that creates a lot of transboundary pressure on water, energy, trade logistics, infrastructure, et cetera. But there's also sort of a a parallel discussion that I just wanted to mention briefly, which is the issue of illegitimate trade or illegal trade and illegal commerce. So part of the reason that, you know, Juarez suffered uh, so much recently with these drug wars is because of that strategic location on the U.S.-Mexico border for the importation and exportation of goods. So it was of critical value to certain cartels to maintain, maintain control of this region. And so that also is one of the effects that we're dealing with, with increased trade between the U.S. and Mexico. How do you deal with the securities issues? How do you deal with public safety? How do you coordinate between the institutions and the law enforcement agencies at the regional level and the binational level to kind of mitigate that black market activity?
0: Why is it a challenge to study wait times at the border? How does the Hunt Institute overcome that? We kind of
1: have a method and a framework that we use to tackle these issues. And as I was saying earlier, unfortunately, these political boundaries and the exercise of sort of territorial sovereignty by the different states and countries here in this very narrow river valley here, this pass in El Paso, um, created and creates a lot of divergent customs and practices uh, much less legal systems and economic systems. the languages are different english and spanish uh, even though both are spoken here but there's differences with the way that data is managed there's different ways that data is conceived of uh different sort of methodologies to generate the data, different customs and practices regarding transparency and accessibility of data. So that first challenge for us, not just as a a binational region in El Paso, but really for the, again, the entire U.S. and Mexico relationship, is to find common frames of reference and to sort of start collecting and compiling these sources of information in key areas so that you can do a comparative analysis of it. The first thing that we did was create a series of databases on our website and in our institute that collects the governmental uh, official data in five really key areas. One is business and economic indicators, the other is energy and natural resource indicators, education, public health, and infrastructure, and urban planning as well. So in these five key areas we have started to collect and compile the indicators from all three jurisdictions, New Mexico, Texas, and, and Chihuahua, so that people both locally as well as further abroad can have a quick immediate access to the information regarding energy prices or water or education institutions or public health or macroeconomic details as they prevail here. So that was the first step, was just to kind of create some kind of base, uh, one kind of uh, a place where all this uh, was, was collected in one location then what we do from there is we start to analyze the data and indicators in those five areas. So, for example, our first report looked at the macroeconomic indicators comparatively in New Mexico, Texas, and Chihuahua. We looked at labor and wage rates. We looked at value of imported goods uh, coming through the region. We looked at the type of goods coming back and forth. We did comparative analysis on the volume and value of trade in the region compared to other ports of entry on the U.S.-Mexico border. We even compared employment and industrial activity in the region with respect to the industrial production indices of the U.S. and Mexico. So we did that, and and then what we actually have just finished at this point is a transboundary energy sector indicator review. So we're looking at both the presence of renewables and hydrocarbons in the region. We're looking at the legal and physical infrastructure related to the extraction and distribution of those resources. And then in the second part of the report, we look at the market conditions here with respect to electricity and uh, fuel, that is gasoline and diesel, for comparative prices, comparative rates, generating stations, all that kind of stuff. And that is really a groundbreaking study, because for the first time, it compares many things that have never been compared before, but in particular, it compares the electrical utilities of El Paso Electric and uh, CFA, and CFA is Comisión Federal de Electricidad, which is the government-owned electrical utility in Mexico. That's kind of the second step. So first we have the databases, and then we have the indicators reviews that add the kind of regulatory and qualitative analysis of the data. And then one of the other things we do is we map all of this. And we have static maps and we have dynamic maps as well. And in the area of the dynamic maps, we have just completed uh, both a transboundary aerospace sector map. And I should say that these sector maps are holistic. They look at the commercial and industrial activity as well as the uh, academic and university resources and the R&D facilities and the launch and test facilities related to aerospace in all of New Mexico, all of Chihuahua and West Texas. So what that does is it provides insight for a local stakeholder or an external stakeholder to understand how aerospace activity in New Mexico compares to, to that activity in Chihuahua then we have repeated that exercise with energy. So we have all the sort of industrial and commercial activity related to renewables and hydrocarbons mapped in New Mexico, Chihuahua, and West Texas, as well as the academic and the R&D facilities. And we're just now starting on a transboundary mining sector map of the region. And we chose those three on purpose because they are really transboundary regional industrial activity. I mean, for example, Juarez has a tremendous automotive production capacity. They do a lot of work for for the uh, auto industry. But that industrial activity is not present uh, in Texas, West Texas, or New Mexico, so it's really concentrated just there in Juarez. So the idea behind the aerospace, energy, and mining was to do maps of industries that are strongly active and represented in in all three jurisdictions. Then the last thing we do is um, transboundary economic impact analysis. So we try to measure the economic impact of a decision or a policy or a tax uh, a rate change or an investment in one jurisdiction on, on the other. So that's something else we're trying to develop and make stronger.
0: So, Patrick, given all this, what do you think the future holds for the bottlenecking effect at the border?
1: There's kind of two things going on. There's the border infrastructure and the border activity that occurs for the service of faraway interests. And so whether those interests are in Fort Worth or Kansas City or Washington or Mexico City, the border, whether it's El Paso region or San Diego or, or South Texas, a lot of the kind of attention or the programs that are put in here can indeed very much facilitate trade, like these pilot programs that we've mentioned. But part of the issue issue is a lot of the pressures on the other hand here really require a resolution because as our two countries become more and more integrated, as our three countries become more and more integrated, you're going to start seeing more and more choke points along the U.S.-Mexico border, more areas of tension, more stress, stress on families, stress on wages, stress on stress on aquifers, stress on uh, energy systems and, and energy resources. And so there needs to be a way for a program to also kind of allow for um, the enrichment enrichment and the, the added value of goods and services that come through the region. So pilot programs like pre clearance really helps facilitate trade and makes it much more efficient. But a lot of that trade doesn't necessarily come through or stay here for the opportunity of our regions or communities to add value. So It's good that that is working on the one hand, but on the other hand, it doesn't really solve a lot of these pressures. I mean, if you even look at a satellite image of El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, it's almost the same city I mean you would never really recognize that those two cities were separate and that goes back hundreds of years the families in El Paso and the families in Juarez and all of us are sort of intimately linked and this is different from other regions of the border this is how our region is a little bit unique because if you're trying to facilitate trade there's also you know families and they're trying to get back and forth across the border but they can't they don't participate like in pre-clearance you know what I mean they don't get pre-cleared I mean there are There are some programs like Century and and the dedicated commuter lane and things like that, Global Entry, that do, but that's very limited. Like I was saying, just to kind of recap, those pilot programs are very good. I think they have one at the airport that deals with preclearance. They have one here in Santa Teresa and Ciudad Juarez to pre-clear goods. But I think that there's a real opportunity to provide more support and more funds for border security infrastructure, and I just want to give you one quick example the ports of entry here in el paso are not always completely staffed by the customs officials and that has to do apparently with a lot of lack of resources so as i was telling you earlier the relationship between el paso and juarez they're like almost one city i mean they're they're closer than brothers and closer than sisters So there was so much need to make sure that all these lanes were open that the city of El Paso actually entered into an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security to fund overtime for customs agents to keep more gates open. And you'll see here that that goes back again kind of to the beginning of our conversation where macroeconomic decisions, macroeconomic flows have created such a a need to keep more gates open or keep more ports of entry open longer, longer longer hours. But the burden, the financial burden, often falls upon our communities here that don't have a lot of resources to spare. So I think that in addition to like facilitating um, or creating programs that facilitate the transfer of, of goods, I think also there could be more work done to provide infrastructure and resources here to facilitate the movement of, you know, families and people and students and things
0: like that. Thanks so much for explaining all that, which is so important, especially for our listeners who are security practitioners and, you know, may have a stake in these issues. And, Patrick, if anyone wants to reach out to you at your institute, how would they contact you?
1: It's the Hunt Institute for Global Competitiveness at UTEP, uh, the University of Texas at El Paso.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thanks,